Welcome to Blackbird episode number 16. My name is James, and today I am joined by Patrick McFarlane from Liberty Weekly. Um, Patrick and I have known each other for a few years, and I wanted to invite him on to just kind of shoot the breeze. Uh, It took place... The interview took place um, on February 13th, so it's been a little while since we recorded. Um, Hopefully everything is still topical. I just got kind of backlogged on my interview recording. Before we get started, let me tell you once again about Paloma Verde CBD. Paloma Verde was founded by a friend of the show and previous guest, Carlos Avilar, and his wife, Vanessa. Um, You know all about the benefits of CBD by now. It can provide pain relief, it can provide sleep help, it can provide all of the benefits of marijuana without uh, the side effect of getting you high and, um, in my case, completely non-functional. So uh, I've benefited from it. My very favorite product is the mint tincture, which I love. It tastes delicious. Uh, the gummies are also really good. So I highly recommend you go to palomaverdestore.com. Make sure to use offer code BLACKBIRD at checkout to get 25% off your order. And with that, here is my interview with Patrick McFarlane. All right, Patrick, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Yeah, so we've uh, we've known each other for a couple of years now, um, just kind of being fellow Upper Midwesterners. Um, but for those who aren't as familiar with you, why don't you kind of give a rundown of who you are and what you do? Yeah, so I am a libertarian attorney. I'm currently admitted to the bar in Wisconsin. I've been practicing for about two years and some change now. Um, so in since my second year in law school or first year, I've been running a libertarian blogging site called Liberty Weekly, and that's at libertyweekly.net. And so on there, I I post a bunch of things about the law, um, uh, libertarian legal theory, but I also dabble in a host of other topics. So you can check out my work there. Awesome. And uh, your podcast was recently relaunched, right? Yeah, I I took a bit of a hiatus because my son was born. Uh, Things got really hectic with work and everything, but I... And I, I also like I, I ran out of things to talk about. And then all of a sudden COVID happened and I I felt like I couldn't just stand back on the sidelines. Yeah. Uh, so what uh, obviously you kind of take the libertarian position on COVID. Um, what are some of the implications other than just like a virus uh, and lockdowns? Where do you see the society going as far as like you know, great reset and all that stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty black pilled and I've always kind of been, if, if people go back into my archives and listen to a bunch of stuff, I, I listened to a lot of Peter Schiff when I first got into the Liberty space. So I was very, um, you know, the, the, the big crash is coming, but I, I, I think that we haven't, we haven't even begun to see the effects of COVID that have hit uh, our society. I think there's cultural effects, um, you know, certain things with children not being able to, uh, you know, being stunted in their development, being stunted in education, not being able to be socially acclimatized. Um, We haven't even begun to see those effects yet, not to mention effects of supply chain disruptions that are occurring right now. Um, I was just 
reading an article about how um, international shipping is at a complete backup right now. And it actually, it's more advantageous to ship empty shipping crates back to China in, in the, um, in the far East. Um, and, and so that's a big problem because you're not getting the, the reciprocity with these shipping bins and all these international shipping, um, the ports are just backed up. And I've been talking to some of my friends who work um, in the industries like plumbing um, and, and other, you know, kind of support industries, construction, things like that. And they're saying that materials are super expensive. Uh, if you've tried to build anything with like wood lately, lumber, uh, lumber is incredibly expensive. And I think these things are just going to get worse. And we haven't seen the effects of inflation I think that, you know, the price of milk, for instance, staples like milk, butter, and eggs are going to go sky high. And I, I'm just, not to mention all of the the commissar kind of USSR, Soviet-style peace and reconciliation commissions that I think that we're facing. But on top of that, possibility of gun control. I mean, there's, there's so much to go after, but I, I think that we really are uh, sitting at the dawn of a new domestic war on terrorism. And that might be the most frightening development, even though everything that I named just now is pretty damn frightening. Yeah, that's a lot of stuff. Uh, let's start from the very first thing, though, because you're the father of a young kid. Have you noticed any of the and, you know, I don't I don't want you to get too emotional on this, but obviously it hits close to home. Um, have you noticed the the impacts of, you know, even something as small as, you know, getting scared of an adult when they take off their mask or whatever? I've heard of kids um, having really, really weird adverse reactions to that. You know, you know I haven't. Um, and I, I'm not too, it's not too emotional for me, maybe because I haven't noticed anything. But my, my son, um, he's almost two years old. We, we do take him to daycare, which I, you know, I'm not super thrilled about, but it's necessity. Um, but thankfully our daycare is more of a, I know they're, they're Christian and they incorporate Christian teachings into everything. They, they've kind of played along with the masking, but his teachers don't wear masks and the other children don't wear masks. And when, when they get to the older ages, I think uh, like pre-K, I think they have, they make them wear masks. I'm not sure, but I don't know how you make a two-year-old wear a mask or a three or a four-year-old. Um, so thankfully, you know, we haven't noticed anything like that with him. That's good. I, man, I saw um, two little girls playing in a backyard wearing masks. It just, it broke my heart. Like I, yeah. I, I can't imagine what kind of parent would force their daughters to wear masks playing outside. Like, yeah. <laughs> unless, I mean, unless it's the kids, like, I mean, if they're so brainwashed this quickly into it, then, I mean, you know, kids tend to, to kind of, they learn and then what they've learned that, well, it stays learned. Um, so what was the second thing you said? There was the, there was the cultural things. Um, wh what do you think as far as like policy goes, lockdowns and masks and, um, you know, occupancy restrictions and stuff like that. What gets lifted? What gets modified? And what's here to stay? Oh, that's a great question. I think um, I think this will all. What I've been saying to people, especially when I go into a, a place without a mask, and they, you know, I'm I'm kind of that jerk 
where I'll, I'll go into places like Whitman's is a grocery store chain around here that's employee owned. And they have signs right outside saying, you know, no mask, no entry and stuff like that. I go in just to test the waters and put the onus on them. And they do say something, but I always say, you know, this is here to stay until we decide that we're not going to go along with it anymore. And I, I think, you know, that goes along with two weeks to flatten the curve and then it just progressed from there more and more times. So I, I think in areas of the state where people are not going along with it, uh, it's not here to stay. I think it is just in, you know, oh, we'll kind of half-ass through the motions and um, we'll fight it in every way that we know how. But in, in other more urban places, I think it's here to stay for years. I think masking is here to stay for years. I think double masking is here to stay for years. And it's not going to go away, even if 75% of the population is vaccinated. Yeah, thankfully, um, you know, there's some pockets like I, I mean, I live in Minneapolis where it's mask central, but uh, yeah. like I went and got my went to my theft appointment at H&R Block today. And uh, like my, my, my tax guy is, he, he goes, I'm so tired of this shit. And I was, I was like, yeah, whatever. So we like, we did our, we did the tax appointment, essentially maskless. They were down on our chins just in case someone else came in. But like, uh, I think that's the thing. Like so many people um, kind of see through the bullshit and still go along with it out of, I don't know. I, it, I guess it's virtue signaling really. Yeah. In, in a way I agree, but I'm, I'm actually, I'm going to allude to, I did this interview with, um, I can't remember which episode number it was, but I, I had someone who escaped communist Romania on my show and she told her story about growing up in a communist country. And there's a lot of parallels that I see with that where people, you know, to a point, they do what they can um like for instance so in in her country the only way really to get ahead was to participate in the black market and there were certain things that you needed out of necessity and i think that when it comes to the mask orders there are going to be there's going to be practicality and necessity that is going to spur people to go against these policies, to go against the mask orders and everything else. When their businesses start failing, um, you know, when they get to a point where there's certain things that are impractical to do with the mask on or social distancing orders, and it's that practicality that is going to force people to disobey. Are you familiar with the concept of Ketman? Ketman, maybe? It's a. Uh, no, I'm not. So apparently, it's. Um, it's considered like a like a mental self defense. Uh, Curtis Yarvin just wrote about it last week, and it's pretty interesting. I think it originates in Islam, where Muslims would uh, pretend to be like Orthodox Muslims in order to avoid persecution. But in real life, like you know, behind the scenes, they're you know, quote breaking the rules. Um, yeah, and I I feel like we're seeing a lot of that. Yeah, for sure. And I, you know, another, another thing is like this concept of Jack Mormonism. I, you know, my, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but my, the other side of my family, they're, they're devout Mormons, not the most devout, but, um, you know, they follow the practices of the church. They have their recommends, they go to temple and everything like that. But there is a certain subset of Mormons who participate in the culture 
uh, but they they will, you know, behind closed doors, they are a bit more loose and they're called Jack Mormons. Uh, and not, I'm not as familiar with it to know if they go to they, you know, go to temple and have their recommends and, and do everything like that. Um, but, yeah, I think um, that's exactly what it is, is that outwardly you you go along to get along, but behind closed doors and when when it really matters, you you throw that out the window. So the and so the the last part of your the last part of your answer was about supply chains, which is um, probably the the most practically scary thing. Um, you know, obviously Austrians are the, Austrian economists will frequently talk about inflation as kind of trickling down from the means of production to the consumer goods. Um, we haven't really seen too much of that. Is it? Do you think it's coming now? I, I think it'll, yeah, I th think it's coming down the pipe. Um, I, I'm not going to pretend that I'm, you know, any kind of expert economist or anything like that, but um, I, I think there's a lot of magic that the Fed does to try and hide the inflation. Mm -hmm. But yeah, in terms of that, we see it in certain uh, specific things. I think we see it in the cost of steel, the cost of um, you know lumber specifically. I know that real estate prices are through the roof right now, and um, I, I'm just wondering when you know when it's going to show up. And anecdotally, I can say that you know gas prices are starting to rise, but I think that has more to do with Joe Biden's policies. But um, you know, anecdotally, I feel like my, my grocery bill is a lot higher. I think, I don't think I've noticed that yet, which is, you know, I'm sure it's coming. Uh, but maybe here in the cities, we've got a little bit more time. I, I don't really know. Um, and, you know, I mean, you never know, like you said, the Fed magic, um, especially with MMT kind of becoming a more popular, I guess, and more accepted by at least the political class. Um, you know, I mean, it's very convenient for them if they've got infinite money that uh, they can just print. Um, obviously, it leads to disaster. But uh, do you like? Do you think that? I mean, you know, Nixon's famous for saying we're all Keynesians now. Do you think we're all MMTers now? As a practical matter, yeah, I think so because I, I mean, you have Janet Yellen who's at the the head of the Treasury. I can't believe that she's she's back. <laughs> I, I, I should have figured, you know, these swamp critters kind of, they hang around and they get into other positions. But as a practical matter, I, I think we are in terms of the, the predominant kind of, you know, theory behind the pe people at the levers of power. Let's take a second to recognize the fact, though, that we do have our first female treasury secretary. So there, <laughs> there is that. Yes, we're we're definitely on top of everything, you know, Janet Yellen. We have our first Treasury Secretary, and um, yep, we're on it. We'll, we'll we'll circle back to that. Yeah, it's good to hear. Good to know. Okay, uh, all right. Well, let's let's switch gears a little bit. Um, so you recently interviewed Michael Bolden of the Tenth Amendment Center, who everyone loves, like literally, um, except for the you know a few uh, lefty activists. Um, anyway, but in that, in that, uh, interview, you mentioned that you wrote a paper in law school on the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions, which is something that I wanted to ask Tom Woods about, but since I've got you, um, and you've actually been to law school, why don't you, first of all, tell us what the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions were. 
Okay, so after the Constitution was ratified, uh, there was kind of a, a reformation of political lines. So um, before the Constitution was ratified, it was kind of like, you know, we had the the Hamiltonian Federalists and kind of the proponents of more centralized power under the the new Constitution. And Tom or James Madison was kind of more on the side of John Adams and uh, Alexander Hamilton and and those types. And then the, the Federalists got in power, especially with uh, the second president, John Adams, and the, the National Bank was really the first thing that came up that really t- tested constitutional bounds. And once James Madison really realized that Alexander Hamilton and the other Federalists were aiming to, to exploit the ambiguous clauses in the Constitution, things like the General Welfare Clause, um, James Madison became concerned and he kind of left the Federalists and joined up with Thomas Jefferson and the Democratic Republicans. And this is all occurring kind of in the background of the 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 French Revolution. And there was a lot of there was a lot of mistrust going around. And, and this sound, should sound pretty familiar in terms of the Trump, the Trump um the Trump presidency and these allegations of Russian collusion. Well, back then it was allegations of French collusion and the Federalists really despised Thomas Jefferson and, and the democratic Republicans because they believed, you know, that the, the democratic Republicans, they favored France. Uh, they later changed their minds when they were horrified by the, the murderous Jacobins and Thomas Jefferson wrote about this. But at the time, they they saw, you know, France was our our friend. France helped us through the revolution. A lot of people felt fealty and loyalty to France. However, the the Federalist fears were really trumped up, and there wasn't any support. There wasn't any evidence for this. But the Federalists were afraid because the Federalists held power in the country. The Federalists controlled the Congress. They had a Federalist presidency. Uh, But Tom... Thomas Jefferson was the vice president at the time because uh, the tickets were formed differently where the, the second and second vote um, became the vice president. So um, the, the Federalists were very concerned that the Democratic Republicans would be getting together with the, the French and starting some kind of a coup in the country and overtaking it. Totally unfounded. Um, there was worries that Thomas Jefferson and his agents would be directing French uh, frigates to land on the east coast of the United States and march on the Capitol, and at, you know at the time the Democratic Republicans uh, they were printing inflammatory things in magazines and publications and pamphlets across the country against the Federalists, and so the Federalists wanted to pass the Alien and Sedition Acts, and uh, pretty famous blatantly unconstitutional, blatantly violated the First Amendment. And the Alien and Sedition Acts basically jailed uh, folks for political speech. It also sought to remove um, sought to remove immigrants or, or foreign nationals from the United States. And that was very much targeted towards Democratic Republicans in the legislature who were not citizens. Uh, Jose or, um, Gallatine, I think it was Albert Gallatine, was the minority leader of the house, I believe at the time. And this was specifically aimed at him. So essentially you have the alien and sedition acts passed. A lot of it was largely symbolic. However, there were famous prosecutions of, uh, 
high figure Democratic Republican politicians. Uh, Benjamin Franklin Bosch, the grandson of Benjamin Franklin, was famously uh, tried under the Alien and Sedition Acts. And basically what the um, what the Democratic Republicans did was they used these trials where people were tried under the Alien and Sedition Acts. It was only like 150 people. And um, there were high profile trials where the Democratic Republicans used them as political show trials, basically, to demonstrate the point of its unconstitutionality. So um, basically, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison got together and they were very concerned that the Federalists were exploiting um, things in the Constitution, uh, exploiting these clauses in the Constitution. And they thought about the different methods that they had designed, you know, James Madison being the father of the Constitution, uh, all these methods. And Thomas Jefferson, I believe, was in France at the time the Constitution was written. So he, he, he had an understanding, you know, he's Thomas Jefferson. He had an understanding of the Constitution, but also of the Declaration of Independence. So there was really this, this fight between the compact understanding of the Constitution and the Federalist version of the Constitution. And the compact being that the separate state or the the several colonies, the states came together to form a Federalist, um, a federal government, a general government, and that they delegated very specific and enumerated powers to this federal constitution. The idea being that the states came as separate parties and they came together to form a compact to create the federal government. Uh, the Federalists didn't see this th see it this way. Uh, the Federalists believe, you know, the that all the states were yoked together under this federal com uh, the federal government, and that they couldn't just leave. The power could not uh, vacate from the federal government and go back to the states in the way that you know we have this idea of popular sovereignty where the people delegate their own power to the government for certain specific purposes. If the government doesn't do what they, you know, if the government steps outside their delegated powers, the powers then go back to the people. And so um, Jefferson and Madison got together in secret and they conspired together to write these resolutions that were passed in Kentucky and Virginia. And in these resolutions, they ghost wrote them. They didn't announce or sign their name on it. Uh, they articulated their view of the um, of the Constitution and they said when when the federal government steps outside the powers that are explicitly delegated to them nullification is the rightful remedy those are Thomas Jefferson's words so in in that understanding is that the states are duty bound to interpose against unconstitutional laws and they are to refuse to carry out uh, they refuse to enforce it uh, they are to declare um, resolutions, uh, you know, ideally each state who, who refused it would declare a resolution declaring the act unconstitutional, saying that they would refuse to enforce it. And uh, that was the rightful remedy. And if it went further, Thomas Jefferson said that, um, you know, nullification was an intermediate remedy, whereas secession being the, the ultimate remedy if a state did not believe uh, in the constitutional constitutionality of a specific law or policy that secession was the rightful answer. So um, thanks for <laughs> indulging me in that long answer. But that's a, that's the 10,000 foot view of what the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions are. So did, did those resolutions pass? 
They did those. They passed in Kentucky and Virginia, I believe. How so? How did it happen that um, the sort of Hamiltonian Federalists, I suppose, sort of like won the day? Did that take until the Civil War, or was that position fairly popular even in the first four score in twenty years? Uh, you mean are you you mean the Civil Wars in eighteen sixty five or yeah when when so when Lincoln declared that our forefathers brought forth to this continent a new nation, mm-hmm. um, that seems to be different from this compact theory of the Constitution where it's not really a nation, it's a collection of independent, I mean, nations, if you can even call the states and colonies nations. I mean, it seems more like a disparate collection of things rather than one nation. Right. And I I think that really the impression that I got in studying my paper and reading literature on the subject was that the Federalists were really represented the old aristocracy. And, you know, especially I know that John um, or Alexander Hamilton was not necessarily an arist. Well, he was an aristocrat. He didn't come from the old money, but the Federalist Party itself represented those entrenched interests, the ones that had been there, mm-hmm. uh, you know, masters of business, connected people. Uh, in fact, you know, in in the the debates over the Constitution, uh, famously John Adams, I believe it was, declared that we needed a president, or excuse, sorry, we needed a king, just like George King George was a king. That the United States needed a king. They they proposed a very federalized, central, or excuse me, a very centralized government, and um, I believe I had that. I should link to the the paper that I wrote. Um, about this in the show notes page. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. Send me a link and I'll, I'll post it. Yeah, I will for sure. And so, I mean, that's kind of where it was. There was this certain idea uh, supported by the um, the Federalists and uh, Samuel Adams and Alexander Hamilton. They greatly, greatly admired the British, the English system, and they, they sought to replicate it in the Constitution. It's amazing how history rhymes. I mean, yeah. you, you said that it sounds a lot like the Russia collusion sort of narrative. And I mean, it really does. Like, even down to the point where the Alien and Sedition Acts are, I mean, right now, you know, obviously the, the Congress isn't passing laws where they're like censoring people and throwing them in jail. But the public square is you know banning people from the main channels of communication for you know for saying the wrong thing speaking against the wrong people do you yeah it, it is it is crazy sorry go ahead no yeah i was just going to ask if you see that as parallel and also what you think about that i mean is it are twitter and facebook just private companies that are uh, you know, free to censor as they see fit? Are they arms of the state? Are they something in between? I, I think that there's something in between. Um, and, you know, I think it's fair to say that libertarians don't have, you know, this is a, a bit of a gap in our understanding and strategy here. Uh, you know, it's been said so many times that these tech giant companies, they're in bed with the government, they get handouts from the government there's questions about where the seed money 
initially came for like things like Facebook mm-hmm. and, and especially I, Google. Yes. Yeah. And, um, you know, you could get into DARPA and all the, those different things. Um, so I, I do kind of see them as an arm of the state. I, I think in our fascist system, and I, I don't mean fascist system as in, you know, Antifa would, would, you know, imagine it. I mean, fascism as literally the Mussolini kind of merger of, of state and, and industry. I, I think that's what we have in this country. But moreover, with, um, I, I think the answer really is to innovate. And I, I think that it, it is a creative way to control speech in the public square is, okay, well, you know, we have all this case law protecting the First Amendment. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there was an amendment to the Constitution that um, an amendment to the Bill of Rights saying, you know, to the First Amendment saying, okay, well, hate speech is not protected under the First Amendment, or they could just create that in case law with SCOTUS. Because yeah, I was going to say, you don't really need an yeah. amendment when when case law is is sort of the, the real supreme yeah. law of the land. Yeah, exactly. We could talk about that, too, if you want another... 15 minute rant, but Oh man, rant. Um, what, uh, well, no, let's finish this topic though. I think, um, I, I just from a strategic standpoint, I think that libertarians need to stop thinking of libertarianism as an ism and start thinking of it more as a community that, I mean, sure. We'll welcome all, all comers. And, uh, you know, I'm trying not to make this a libertarian podcast it seems like yeah. every single episode is it's so libertarian heavy. Um, but this, I mean, this goes for any sort of free thinking movement, community of people, whatever. Um, whether you're a, you know, a Dave Rubin follower or a Murray Rothbard follower or whatever follower. Um, creating, like innovating does not mean creating the next Google it means creating something that works better for you than Google. And then, you know, attracting the maybe small number of people who will also benefit from it. I mean, most people are going to continue using Google until Google doesn't work well for them. Yeah. I I mean, I, for instance, I use DuckDuckGo, but I, I get frustrated because I don't believe DuckDuckGo gives me the results that I want, (laughs) you know? Um, I don't think it's as good of a search platform, but yeah, it, this is, I mean, I'll harp on library. I, I love library and Odyssey. And I, I think that everything is summed up in a, a tweet that they put out a few weeks ago is, I don't know if I can remember it offhand. I'm going to butcher it, but basically only it said only describe library is an alternative to YouTube. Um, I'm going to butcher it. Don't, it was like, don't, don't compare library to YouTube because that's like comparing a horse and buggy to an automobile. Yeah. And, and that's the way I think we need to be thinking. Well, I love Odyssey and if I, I just wish that um, I need, like I need to develop the habit of linking to Odyssey instead of to YouTube because like, I mean, I sit here all day with YouTube playing in the background. I, I work from right. home and uh, you know, it's, it's what I do. Um so, but yeah, I mean, I publish every episode of my podcast onto YouTube and Odyssey. Um, and I mean, hell, I, you know, you make a little bit of money from 
publishing just publishing to Odyssey and then just watching videos on it. I mean, yeah, you know, it seems like a no brainer. Uh, and then um, speaking of search engines, in addition to Odyssey, there's a there's a new search engine called PreSearch, um, which is also uh, I don't know if the search engine itself is blockchain based, but it does have a token that uh, each search gives you like a quarter of one of their tokens. So that might be worth looking into. And I'll, I'll be sure to link to that as well. Jack Spearco has been really talking about it on the survival pod, podcast a lot lately. I'm really, I'm cutting your workout with you or for you for, with the show notes here. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, my buddy <laughs> just told me about pre-search today. And so I'm, I'm intrigued. I'm going to learn a lot more about it. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty awesome. Um, also, so you described yourself as blackpilled earlier, but also you have this libertarian golden age thesis. Uh, so, I mean, maybe you're not quite as blackpilled as, as you think. No, I, I think you're right. And, but I'm, I'm trying to find the white pills in all of it. I, I really, I, I think that I got really excited because what for years we've been waiting for mass, mass adoption of the, these alternatives that we were just discussing, you know, library odyssey, um, IPFS, we were chatting pre-show about this. Um, and MeWe, I mean, MeWe's meh, or, or Mastodon, uh, Liberdon, Mastodon, what have you, Mines, I, I could keep going, uh, Float.app. Um, but I, I got excited because with everything that's been happening, I, I labeled this uh, the dawn, my, my article is for a new libertarian golden age, the dawn of an agorist internet. And I really have been identifying people who, who are, voting with their feet and in, in being part of the change and seeking these alternatives in part because of necessity. Um, but I think there's massive opportunity here. And I would posit that we're really sitting in an era like the wild west age of the internet. And I think that these things are going to go in cycles. So, you know, if, if you were, if you were on the internet in the early nineties, you know, you were on dial up, but it was the wild west people, you know, people were on email chains, people were on forums, people were, they were doing all these different things and um, information was abound and it was flowing. Now I think that when these, with the, with big tech, you know, it was the same way when YouTube first came out, you know, you'd have cat videos and then you'd have nine 11 conspiracy stuff and you'd have, yeah. you know, Alex Jones stuff. And I, I think that we're at an era where people are actually moving into these alternatives and these alternatives are, are, they're reinventing, you know, like library is a is a car compared to YouTube horse and buggy. And there's, it's exciting. We're getting in at the ground floor in that. And, and there's something to be, to be white pilled about and optimistic about there. Well, I just interviewed the, the founders of float. Um, the, the, the episode's not out yet, uh, but I, I'm pretty sure I'm going to publish it before this one. So I can probably let all their stuff out right. that float.app um, right now looks like looks just like Twitter, but they've got all kinds of stuff down the pike. Like, uh, you know, I mean, they're, they're tokenizing, so they're going to have their own, their own cryptocurrency, oh, which, good. you know, may or may not be, you know, worth investing in. Um, but they're going to have a POS system that is not only for online purchases, but for brick and mortar, uh, businesses as well. They've got a, they've already got, um, a sandwich store with 70 locations under contract. Um, they're building a whole movement and a whole infrastructure, for e-commerce, regular commerce, social networking. Um, they've got streaming, which even Odyssey doesn't have video streaming yet. They will this week. Oh, really? Or that's good. Week, that's good yeah. to hear. Yeah. So by the time so this- buy your LBC 
see now. Yeah. <laughs> so by the time this posts, uh, that should that should be in place. So good. I, I misspoke. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think you're right about this golden age. Um, necessity. What is it? Necessity breeds innovation. Something yeah. like that. And there. I mean, how do you how what what recourse do the authoritarians, whether they're the state or the the you know globalist elite or just you know your friendly neighborhood um, misguided BLM activist, what recourse do they have against the geniuses in the room? You know. Well, I think maybe the only recourse they would have is that. I, I do worry a little bit about um, these new platforms being an echo chamber. Mm -hmm. That being said, I, I think that James Corbett put this the right way is that, you know, we're going to be the trendsetters. We're going to create the space. And then once people, you know, get sick of being on, you know, tech legacy tech platforms, they're going to realize that all the cool kids are doing our thing over here. And, they will start adopting it. But when they do start adopting it, it will be a libertarian space that we've created. And I, I think there's a lot of value in that. That's true. But, you know, I mean, Twitter and Facebook started out nominal, nominally libertarian-ish. I mean, and, you know, it's still, yeah. he, as, as awful as he is, Jack Dorsey still has libertarian instincts. Um, I, I mean... He's, he, you know, he's all in on Bitcoin, obviously, but also, you know, Twitter is building that, um, I think it's called Blue Sky, something like that. It's a decentralized social network platform. I think it's similar to Mastodon, um, where you can kind of build your own social networks based on its engine. Uh, so I, I do wonder what's to stop these so-called free speech platforms from going the way of Facebook if they get too big. Do you think that's a that's a concern? Yeah, I think it it uh, I think it's always a concern. I think in in the same way that you know Thomas Jefferson famously I think it was Thomas Jefferson is that the tree of liberty needs to be watered from time to time with the blood of tyrants. <laughs> I think there's a constant struggle between the corrupting forces of power. It's kind of like the Lord of the Rings allegory. Mm. Um, I think what they're really trying to do is build it into the code that essentially there will be no possibility of doing that in the same way that cryptocurrencies are, are built in. The main thing about Bitcoin is that theoretically it can't be controlled by anyone. Um, and, you know, if these platforms do it right, they could make it that way. Uh, for example, uh, library, the, the library blockchain is public and available to anyone. And if library or Odyssey, if they start censoring people, there's no, there's nothing stopping anyone from creating their own instance of Odyssey using the library blockchain to access the content that's permanently on it. Right. Um, so there, there's a possibility like that. That's what, uh, like, um, I, so I'm I'm a huge like Ethereum fanboy. I, yeah. I'm I guess I'm not like an Ether maximalist or whatever, but uh, I think that Ethereum has even more promise than Bitcoin as far as like world changing um, potential. Um, but Vitalik Buterin, the founder of Ethereum, he's kind of a woke SJW ish person, oh. and if and and he like he's not he's not as bad as you know 
uh, uh, just any run of the mill NYT or CNN journalist. But, you know, I mean, he's got woke leanings and that's fine because the platform that he developed isn't even, I mean, it's not even really a platform. It's, it's just a technology that is universally applicable and completely censorship resistant. Um, and I love that about that. And I, what, and, and I love about him that he recognizes that and celebrates it, that even things that he personally finds deplorable, which I find, you know, milk toast can still, <laughs> can still exist on his platform. Um, so that, that's, that's why I think that the decentralized things are, and, and you know, I, like, I don't know much about how decentralized technology works. Like, I'm just not, I'm not a technologist. Uh, mm-hmm. So like, I don't really know how Telegram and Signal and um, that sort of thing work. Uh, but I knew, I do know that when things are distributed among, you know, millions and millions of computers rather than in one central location, it's really, really tough to oppress them and suppress them. Um, so that's where I think the most promise is. Do you know much about uh, the interplanetary file system IPFS, or do you know enough about it to at least kind of describe what the hell it is? Yeah, I, I think so. I'll, I'll take a stab at it. I'm also not a technologist. I yeah. like I like to say what my dad likes to say is he he has this saying where he's like, uh, I know enough to be dangerous, <laughs> um, which I think has the implication that like I know enough to get in and really screw things up. <laughs> well, you've already quoted Thomas Jefferson, which, you know, in uh, in a few years will probably get you thrown in prison. So probably. let's let's get dangerous Wait. for just a minute. <laughs> so okay. in Minecraft. Um, Right. Well, okay. So my understanding is that basically in the same way that HTTPS or excuse me, HTTP um, is a, a way that the internet is structured itself where you are accessing files. Uh, IPFS is a protocol that you use. So instead of putting HTTP in, in your uh, address bar, you put IPFS okay. and essentially what it is, is storing um, it's a peer-to-peer internet, basically, where you're not accessing files from a centralized server. Um, I I believe it's that people are independent, you know, people with their desktop computers are hosting instances of web pages on, on the whole thing. So instead of having a centralized server, it's that the entire network is hosting internet files. And from my understanding, that's the way the, the internet was originally meant to be and in some way it's baffling that the internet has become what it is which is centralized uh website storage because decentralized website storage is way faster from my understanding so i I hope that makes sense i hope i'm right about that yeah well and i mean you know when the internet was 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 developed it wouldn't have really been feasible because there were so few computers and what computers existed just didn't have the storage capacity for that kind of thing i mean my my very first computer in 1997. So you were a little kid, but you know I was a seventh yeah. grader, and it it had a six and a half gigabyte hard drive, and that was huge. Like, how could you yeah. ever possibly fill six and a half gigabytes? I did it with porn, but <laughs> I mean, you know, that was that was after a few years, and I upgraded to a 10 gig hard drive, and didn't need another one until you know more years after that. Uh, so I think that's probably part of it, the technology is just advanced now that um, 
in such a way that it's it's feasible and affordable and um, workable. I th- I think it is. I do recall though. I don't know if this was on the Corbett report or something else. Is that um, he did like a questions for Corbett. I'm a huge Corbett fanboy, by the way. I <laughs> can. I got hey. I got a shout. I got a shout out on the Greater Reset uh, during Corbett's um, like his presentation. Oh yeah. They, they were gonna take yeah. They were gonna take questions from the audience. They only took one question from the audience, and it was me. And it was because I had interviewed. <laughs> it was because I had interviewed Derek Bros the day before the Greater Reset, and so they saw my name and they were like, "Oh, it's James from the Blackbird Podcast who just interviewed Derek Bros." The Derek Bros interview has more hits than any other, like by far, uh, than any other of my episodes. So um, wow, that's wonderful. It, I know it's pretty cool. So Corbett fans, you know, thanks for visiting. Uh, please subscribe. <laughs> I, I owe a lot to Corbett, not only because he inspired me to do my show, but episode 14 of my show was entitled economics, eugenics, and the minimum wage. And he linked to it in one of his subscriber newsletters. And that got a lot of traffic. Yeah. To my new, so libertyweekly.net forward slash 14. I'll always remember that. So I haven't listened to it yet. I didn't. So I, uh, I didn't, I didn't start going down that rabbit hole until um, I heard Monica Perez on the Dave Smith show. um, Part of the problem. So, Monica was sort of my, I mean, she wasn't my red pill. I would say that Tom Woods and Lou Rockwell are my red pill, but Monica Perez was my like, um, I don't know, rabbit stew pill or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Down the, and I hesitate to call it even conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not like James Corbett is going on and, you know, talking about the Freemasons and the, and the Illuminati and stuff. He's talking about real, real life stuff. Monica Perez is yeah. just analyzing the news. Um, it's no different as far as I'm concerned to, you know, Scott Horton who just connects dots, you know? Yeah. And I, I love James's, uh, you know, the whole idea of his show there, he had one of his first interviews, he was on the ripple effect podcast and he, he always, I, I don't know. He points to that to say, okay, this is what the corporate report is all about. And this is what my idea is of like who runs the world and everything. Um, he said, basically what his show is, is open source intelligence news is that you'd be amazed at what is open, you know, intelligence agencies across the world, they get their intelligence from open sources. You know, <laughs> you yeah. think it's some kind of cloak and dagger clandestine intel they're getting. In fact, usually that information is false and they end up, you know, blowing up the wrong village or bombing a wedding. But I digress. Um, so so that's what the, the whole idea of the project is. So, um, well, and that kind of brings me to uh, a conversation you had with um, Keith, not Keith Knight here recently where you mentioned that your your grandfather was uh john bircher oh yeah <laughs> that so i i didn't know much about john birch until i saw um jordan peterson here in minneapolis live and it was the one time he ever had a heckler for his entire that that world tour he did that was cut short by his uh by his um, mental illness and his wife's um cancer but uh, someone stood up during his presentation and said, this is all John Birch propaganda. And <laughs> I had no idea what John Birch was. Um, can, so w- was your grandpa like a, like a conspiracy kook or 
were the John Birchers, uh, were they legit? So my grandfather was a bit of a conspiracy kook. I mean, in granted, he died when I was a year old. So I, my greatest wish is to sit down and have a six hour conversation with him. Um, however, that's not possible. But the, the John Birch Society was started in Appleton, Wisconsin. And oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting about that. But so I, I mean, they're described as radical and far right. But I mean, they essentially what they are, are very radical anti-communists. And in a way, you could say that they were, um, you know, they were involved with McCarthyism in, in a certain way. Um, they're kind of paleoconservatives, but they're anti-war and, you know, they have conservative values from what I understand, but yeah, they're, I think G Edward Griffin is a John Bircher, or at least he spoke a lot at um, John Birch events. There's a lot of talk about, you know, the federal reserve and like the creature from Jekyll Island, stuff like that. Um, now I'm not aware that that, I don't believe it gets into anti, you know, anything about a Jewish conspiracy specifically, but I mean, it's your run of the mill, new world order kind of um, federal or uh, anti-federal reserve kind of stuff. Sure. Uh, so are they, are they known for being anti-Semitic or Jewish conspiracy theorists? Um, like I said, I know nothing about them. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, to, to be, to be honest, I have not done a whole bunch of researching into the John Birch society. And I always figured that, well, you know, Thomas Massey was a John Birch society. Sure. Um, and so, he's the, he's the best congressman other than Ron Paul. And oh yeah. Yeah. I totally you know, agree. Centuries. Totally agree. Um, I, I would say their detractors say maybe that they are, you know, anti- you know how, you know, if you're anti-banker. Dude, every, yeah, I mean, everybody's anti-Semitic. I get it. Like, <laughs> Yep, exactly. So I, I think so, you know, and I have some of his old pamphlets that he would hand out. And I'm holding one of my hands. It's called, I mentioned this on my other show, but it's called Billions for the Bankers and Debts for the People. Oh, the okay. So that's so. where that's where they might get uh, the anti-Semitic vibe, even right. though it's, I mean, <laughs> I'm a libertarian and I'm anti-banker. Like I'm even anti-bank. I don't, I mean, you know, I, I would, I would have no problem with uh, a society where um, usury was looked down upon. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't support legislation to that effect, but you know, I mean, I'm much more into, Hey, can I borrow 10 bucks or Hey, can I borrow a hundred thousand bucks? You must like uh, decentralized finance cryptos. Dude. Then. You have yeah. no idea. Like, <laughs> I think, uh, so I'm heavily invested other than Bitcoin and, e and Ether. Actually, I think I have more chain link than Ether at this point, thanks to uh, Pavel, who is a previous guest on the show. And I think he's on in the next few weeks. Um, chain link is sort of the Oracle that, um, and I don't, I don't want to try to get too technical because I don't understand it, but uh, it's a, it's an Ethereum based thing that like facilitates DeFi transactions uh, and also the, the smart contracts. Um, uh, don't quote me, but yeah, it, uh, DeFi to me is like the wave of the future. I think it's so awesome. Oh yeah. I I'm very excited at that. Um, 
I'm very excited at the prospect of, you know, I, I'm staking, you know, I got in on, on Cardano before when it was still like 30 cents, excuse Ooh. me, I got, or no, I got in when it was like 20 cents and now it's pushing a dollar and I'm very happy, but from my understanding, Cardano is kind of the same idea. I think it's in competition with Chainlink. Yes. Um, I've heard that. But for those, I mean, for those who aren't familiar uh, with decentralized finance, I, I think it's basically the idea that um, people stake their Cardano or they stake their cryptocurrency and anyone who's applying for financing or a loan, um, they take out your staked Cardano or, uh, excuse me, DeFi, right? Is Am I right at that? Uh, don't get me talking about that. I have no <laughs> idea. No. Well, I, uh, the whole although, concept, yeah. There's another, there's another, um, like there's there's a what app called BlockFi where you can actually you know just put your put your crypto into this sort of pool and um, I, I mean it's it's basically just you're you're issuing loans and yeah. uh, I think I might have an affiliate link to that. Um, well, send it my way because I want to get a BlockFi account. However. For, I'm, I'm a little concerned. It's like, you know, I, I signed up for Bitrex. So I'm on the Bitrex exchange and I signed up like four years ago. I'm, I just don't want to give out my ID, you know, to so many people. Yeah. That's the problem with living in the United States is that, I mean, the, the KYC laws here are insane. Mm-hmm. Um, like I was saying earlier, I was at my tax appointment or, uh, today and, um, the guy was talking about, you know, crypto trading and uh, like, you know, it's totally legal to do overseas trading. It's just, you have to report everything. Uh, and you know, I'm, I'm really scared of like what my tax bill is going to look like if I get into trading or staking or uh, any of that. So, I mean, you're not a tax attorney, but do you know anything about that? Nope. <laughs> okay, good. You no, know, and I, uh... <laughs> Well, maybe I have to worry about it too, because I know on last year's taxes, they asked, you know, do you hold or trade cryptocurrency? Yeah, that was on today's too. That's why, uh, that's why I was uh, a little bit worried about it. Um, <clears throat> the way that, uh, the way that Pavel, my, my crypto coach is what I call him. Uh, the way he does it, um, he really tries to skirt around tax laws and I'm, I'm terrified to do that. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, he trades with a VPN looking like he's, overseas and uh you know just i mean he just holds everything he never he never cashes out and to me it's like what's the point if you're going to be a full-time crypto trader and not cashing out well i think and you uh, have to i mean in order to cash out you'd have to either you know report it and pay your taxes or launder it somehow and i I really don't want to get a you know murder laundering or i mean a money laundering charge no no one and i think that what is is this um, in the matrix? I love the matrix and I mention it way too much. Um, I think in the matrix, uh, Neo turns to, he's, he's talking to Morpheus and I apologize if you're not familiar with the matrix at all, anyone in the audience. Um, but he turns to him and he says, you know, are you saying that, um, are you saying I'm going to be able to dodge bullets? Like, like the agents do in the matrix and Morpheus turns to Neo and he says, no, Neo, I'm telling you that when you're ready, you won't need to dodge bullets. And the point of that being is that, well, you'll hold your cryptocurrency and you won't have to worry about it in the future because you'll be able to buy everything that you need with your crypto instead of fiat. 
Yeah, yeah. But you know what? I I right now have a job that I, you know, I love my job and I love my employer, but I would much mm-hmm. rather be, you know, living free. So yeah. <laughs> that's that's one way to live free is uh, being a trader. So um, anyway, that's that's really neither here nor there. I just got access to my BlockFi account. I had to reset my password. Um, if I have an affiliate link, I'm going to send it to you and I'll put it in the show notes as well. Um, oh, good. So you also have talked a lot about the Gestapo um, and sort of how they, uh, I don't know, they were sort of the enforcers, right? Of like the, the, the thought police or whatever in Germany and, so, and, and Nazi Germany. Is that about right? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, I think I, I've read some literature saying that we get the impression in revisionist history that the Gestapo was a huge, you know, a huge police force. Um, however, there really wasn't that many of them in terms of numbers, but they mostly ruled through fear in their reputation. And so from, from the, the research that I've been able to do, it really looks like what their tactics were was to make the bark worse than the bite. Although the bite was pretty bad, <laughs> but it was the, the bark itself yeah, yeah. that is what, helped enforce the policies so we uh we're recording this on the 13th of february and so this week the big story has been gina carano and her tweet about how you know the lead up to the holocaust was not just hitler seizing power and then all of a sudden you know kidnapping all the jews it started out with like a community movement yeah, and I, I mean that's really the the saddest and and most terrifying part about, about um, the Holocaust in a way, in, in my opinion, is that you know as bad as the SS were and as bad as the concentration camps and um, all that was, it was really the story of you know an untold story in a way is how the SS was able to turn groups you know, turn people against their countrymen and in a way recruit certain segments. You know, they took advantage of these ethnic um, rivalries in, in the Eastern Bloc countries. Mm-hmm. And and really in a lot of places it was, right, that certain ethnic group turning on Jews or or gypsies or the, the other persecuted groups and neighbors executing neighbors. Are we, are we headed in that direction? Do you think? I sure hope not. I mean, I, I really hope that my one hope is that these social justice warriors or people who are very, very buying into this ideology. I really truly hope that they really are just a vocal minority and in a way, even if they are, you know, kind of like the Gestapo was, they made their bark um, really bad, worse than the bite, but it was that bark in the same way that the, the SJWs in, in that whole crowd, um, they scream and yell the loudest and they're the ones that get things done, you know? So I, I don't know if we're headed in that direction. I truly hope not, but I'm afraid of it. You know, there's talks of purging, um, there was the talks of truth and reconciliation committees 
which um, ha happened before January 20th, but especially after January 6th, they really kind of ramped up. And I, I really don't know. I hate to be, I'm always an alarmist and I hate to be hyperbolic, but I, I could see a future in which that happens. I mean, we see, you know, across the country, people be, um, ratting out their neighbors who are having groups of people that are, are too much. And so I really would advocate, I know you're in the Twin Cities and I'm sure you love it there, um, but I'm one for smaller towns, you know, really get to know your neighbors if, if you can't leave. Yeah, I've been, I've been looking into that and thinking about that. I, I mean, you know, I, Hey, I love, love the cities too. You know, I, of course you mentioned it in the beginning of the show that we met in the cities. I lived there for seven or eight years and I, you know, I'm, I have very fond memories there. Um, yeah. And I've got the, I guess I've got the added benefit that I'm, you know, quote, a member of the LGBT community or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and genuinely, I very much uh, uh, enjoy the company of people who are behind the scenes, not as SJW as they seem in public, which um, kind of gets back to what we were talking about earlier about the um, just sort of play acting at your orthodoxy. Uh, so there is that. Um, but yeah, I've definitely been seriously considering um, trying to find a plot of land, if only for the, you know, I, I love the idea of like being the upper Midwest's, you know, the, like the, the, the farm where people have the next Woodstock or even yeah. just the next pork fest. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I, I love that idea of being like the event host. Uh, so, I've, so yeah, I've been looking into that. I've been looking into the idea of buying a few acres if I can swing it financially. Um, but again, that gets back to making money. So, <laughs> right. Well, I mean, if anything, to have a bug out location or, you know, you live in the cities, but if, if things really go bad, I, I don't know, just, uh, just an idea. Um, well, and I've got, I've got bug out locations. That's not a huge deal. And actually my, uh, my bug out locations are also happen to be gun nuts. So that's pretty great because awesome. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not super well armed either, which I, uh, is kind of heresy in our, in our circles, but there we go. Um, back to, back to like the, what the snitch culture, the, 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 uh, well, I, I guess it's the Gina Carano thing. Um, she did draw a parallel between Jews and, I mean, ostensibly she was talking about conservatives. Do you think that, do you think that conservatives or those on the right are in danger of eventually being legitimately persecuted? Um, in some way, I think we're already there. Um, I mean, just look at, at, at least in the internet space, yes. I think that when it comes to face-to-face -face personal interaction, you know, my, again, my dad, he, when I was a teenager, he always said, be careful of what you say online because you get into arguments and people say things that they don't mean on the internet. Mm -hmm. uh, in a lot of way, I think it's, it's easy to cancel someone online when all you're really doing is sitting in your living room, you know, in your bathroom, in your bathrobe, furiously typing on your phone. Um, but it's another thing 
you know, to, to make a direct comparison to Gina Carano's tweet, it's another thing to run, you know, chase your neighbor through the street and to throw bricks at them. Right. Um, right. And that, I think that's one kind of benefit that our hyper-technologized world has. And maybe it's not even a benefit. I mean, the they didn't need, like they, the capital T, they didn't need to assassinate Donald Trump because they could just use the massive, massive propaganda arm of the state, which, you know, to me is CNN and MSNBC and even Fox News and Twitter and Facebook and all of the sort of shapers of culture to um, unperson him, to strip to strip him and the movement that he started from any sort of identity besides the identity that they decide is how to identify them. So that's why I'm a little bit less pessimistic about a coming persecution in the same vein as the Holocaust. But on the other hand, I mean, what kind of life is it if all you can do is like exist if your bank has cut you off if the social networks which the social networks are the public square have cut you off um and all you are are, is you know a kook on a soapbox with no job and uh no way of actually supporting yourself yeah and and that's my black pill coming out yeah well i in that same vein, the black pill vein, I, I think maybe my comparison about chasing someone through the street and throwing a brick at them, mm-hmm. you know, that's not quite, I don't think that's quite parallel, but I, I do think that, um, you know, in certain situations where if, if let's say your town is having a referendum and you go and you speak out at a town hall event or something like that, I mean, people legitimately do still in that context get pissed off and want to you know, cancel someone or, or, you know, if, if the school administrator says something bad on social media, there would be an in-person campaign to remove said person. So, um, yeah, but I do think, um, you know, not to get even more conspiratorial, uh, excuse me, conspiratorial here, but I sometimes wonder if, if Donald Trump is not, you know, he doesn't, I wonder if he's not controlled opposition. I don't think he has to be controlled opposition, but I do think the way that they spun him worked so well for, for what I believe their ultimate end yeah. is. If, if they're wanting to consolidate and centralize control, they did a hell of a good job of identifying everyone whose instinct is to decentralize or to nationalize, which is a form of decentralization, maybe not the one that you and I would posit, or advocate for, but mm-hmm. I mean, it, it brought out all those people, it solidified them into an identity and then it, uh, it outed them and then it turned them into domestic terrorists. And that's very, very convenient for the people who would, uh, have authority over them. Um, yeah, I definitely, I, I don't know if Donald Trump was controlled opposition, but I definitely think he was created opposition. Uh, they really, really yeah, took advantage yeah. of his personality, if nothing else. Right. Yeah. But, so, you know, I mean, in, in, go ahead. 
Well, I was just going to say, I mean, isn't it damn convenient that the entire <laughs> the the entire um, terrorist uh, security state, the surveillance state for catching foreign terrorists is now aligned with the cameras pointed inward. That infrastructure is all there and set yeah. up, just like we've been saying for, you know, decades now. Well, yeah, I think that was inevitable, too. I, it, You know, the post 9-11 propaganda, I was actually just talking on Facebook with someone about this today. Um the the propaganda like the anti-terrorist propaganda the see say see something say something messaging i mean that led directly to like a whole bunch of just terrified parents and that led to a whole generation of like overprotected sheltered kids who went to college you know 18 years later and demanded and expected their the powers that be at those universities to be their parents who were sheltering them and protecting them and keeping them safe from quote unquote harm um real and imagined and that created this like you know the state is no longer the reactive preventer of danger but is now the proactive preventer of danger uh and they're so so that's why you get people not just accepting but demanding lockdowns and um you know executing the insurrectionists i i can't tell you how many tweets i've seen of people who were like you know oh i oppose capital punishment or even like i oppose prison i i'm an abolitionist um but man if anybody should be locked up it's these people you know i mean it's just insane yeah, and I mean, I I can speak freely about this now, but at my at my old job, my bosses were very much in this narrative, and they were, you know, they're they're boomers, and I don't mean that in a derogatory term. That's literally what they are, True. and um, you know, they eat everything up in terms of this uh, CNN and in uh, all the news media cycle. I mean, what it, it just it amazed me. I mean. <clears throat> Anthony Fauci went on saying that, oh, maybe you should wear two masks. And then the next day they come in saying, well, they're saying we need to wear two masks. So everyone needs to wear two masks in the office now. Um, Yeah. And it's just, it's insane. And, you know, I, I'll tell you again, my, my aunt works at a local community college and you will not believe she works in the, the, the department where people will come in and ask, um, you know, like technical help. So students call in and they're asking for things. And it's like the registrars send out an email saying, okay, you need to do A, B, C, and D in order to register for classes. And this is how you do it. Or, or this is how your financial aid is going to work. We're going to pay your tuition first, and then you get the refund check. And they get voluminous calls every single day about, you know, oh, I got this email. What do I do? Or, you know, oh, I need to register for classes. What do I do? And it's oh, like, no. okay, well, it's literally is in the email. And it's it's not Actually, just 20 year olds. No. Right. It's not just 18 or 20 year olds. I mean, it's older folks too, 40, 50, you know, back to school people. It's, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's sort of a mix between like instant gratification. Uh, expectation and just the expectation that we will be told exactly what to do. And if like, 
if there's any sort of necessity to do any work prior to being told what to do, uh, then we're not, including reading an email, which is work. Uh, we're not going to do it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, it's, it's interesting too, because, you know, I'm not exempt from this and I, I think me neither. one of the challenges, of, right. What <laughs> One of the challenges of being a lawyer is that, um, and why I think, you know, generally speaking, millennials aren't the best lawyers just as, you know, in collectivist terms is because being a lawyer is like you, you have to be able to figure out the answer for yourself. You have to look at the law because it's not always, you know, it's not going to hold your hand. You have to look at it. You got to figure it out. You got to solve the puzzle. And it's very much, you know, it's, it's not the, it's not for people who sit back and are like, okay, well, teacher, tell me what to do or how do I do this assignment? It's the people who roll up their sleeve and it's like, okay, I'm going to tinker around with this until it fits kind of thing. Um, so it's, it's interesting. That said, I mean, and maybe it's just a, maybe it's both boomers and millennials are, have this expectation to be told what to do, but you know, I mean, like you said, the boomers at your, at your employer were, um, just following orders. And like, you know, I mean, my, my parents are, are boomers. They're, they're kind of on the tail end of the baby boom, but you know, they still fall in the, in the technical parameters, I guess. Um, they, they're, they're conservative boomers. And so they have really, and especially my mom have fallen completely in line with like the, the QAnon stuff. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like my mom was waiting for, you know, messages from these sort like she sent, she, she sent me this video of like this guy just sitting in a messy office, um, like setting dates. I mean, it's almost, it's almost like, you know, 19th century seventh day Adventists with the, uh, the date setting stuff like, Oh, just wait until, you know, January 1st or January 6th. Or um, now I, I think it's like March 30th or whatever. Like they're, they're convinced that these dates like are going to come and something's going to come to pass. Um, the uh, one, one thing was Apple was going to release an update to iOS where they're turning off Amber alerts so that President Trump can't communicate with the people. Now that he's off Twitter, he was going to, I guess, use the emergency alert system to, to like send messages. Um, <laughs> and then are, can, can I ask, are your parents religious? Uh, y- well, they, they, yes, my dad is religious. My mom was religious. Um, and then she kind of went on her own little spiritual path. Uh, uh-huh. But they're definitely, they definitely follow the authorities wherever, wherever they go. Um, so like, you know, when they're religious, they're, they do whatever the church says. And, uh, you know, when they find a pundit to, to latch onto that person is always right. I remember, um, my dad opposed the Iraq war, um, because John Paul II said to oppose the Iraq war. Uh, and I opposed the Iraq war because I was on the left at the time. Uh, <laughs> And so we had that in common, but then years later, my dad, um, who disapproved of George W. Bush, um, became sort of a tribalist Republican. And because David Letterman made fun of George W. Bush, he started to like George W. Bush. And even to the point where, um, 
after everyone in the country had come to oppose the Iraq war, uh, my dad was all of a sudden in the, well, he had to do something camp where like, it's just really weird. He's the only person I know who's flip-flopped in the other direction on Iraq. And it's all because of, you know, the person in whose tribe he belonged uh, was persecuted by the other tribe. I, I've been very pleasantly surprised by, you know, as long as we're on the topic of family, I've been very proud of and pleasantly surprised by my family and their reaction to the COVID situation. I, I think it's because, um, you know, I've been a kook since I became, you know, a voluntarist. <laughs> yeah. And I've been saying the sky is falling and I've been saying, you know, that we're entering a police state, you know, we're, all, you know, all the things that you and I know and the audience probably knows, so I won't recount them. But I, I think that as things start started to come to pass in some way, maybe this is just myself aggrandizement, um, but in some way I felt like they've been acknowledging that yes, I've been annoyingly proselytizing about the good word of voluntarism, but they've been acknowledging that, that um, you know, things, things are going in that direction and they're pissed off about it. They are indignant, not indignant, uh, but they're set against it. You know, they're, they're gritting their teeth, trying to resist. Um, my mom has become, you know, more of a, she's also flirted with not QAnon, but flirted with, you know, the alternative scientists coming out talking against COVID. Um, but, you know, when someone is newer to this space, it's interesting to watch them go through phases that you went through. <laughs> yeah. Well, and my, my, at least my mom, I know was uh, very, very um, anti COVID restrictions kind of from the beginning. Actually, I'm, I think she was anti mask before I was even anti mask, which, uh, it's surprising because oh, wow. I, 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 I was, I was like masks are, uh, you know, it's just common sense. Of course they're going to uh, stop the droplets or whatever. Um, since then I've come to realize that, you know, the science just isn't there. Uh, I, and I'm not sure where my dad was on all that. I know he's kind of a rule follower. So like we, like he would put his mask on when we would go inside places and stuff. When I was down there last time, uh, they live in Texas and, okay. um, and I know he's like really excited to get the vaccine. And I think I, but I think he's excited to get the vaccine because like Trump was talking up the vaccine, you know, I could okay, be wrong yeah. about that. I could be wrong about that, but like, I just know, like I've seen him comment on, on family. Like I've got a, I've got an uncle who's a doctor, um, I think it was him or maybe his daughter who's a nurse. One of them got the vaccine and my dad commented, Oh, I can't wait till I can get my vaccine. Like, <laughs> like it's an aspirational thing. Um, so, right. uh, you know, I mean, it's sweet and I don't, I don't begrudge a 60 year old, you know, the, the, I mean, it's, it will potentially save his life and he's had serious health problems too. Uh, like I'm not completely anti-vax. Um, I'm probably not going to get it just because I, I don't really see the need for it. And, I have adverse reactions to flu vaccines. So, uh, I, you know, yeah. I, I just wouldn't get it anyway, unless, you know, I've got concert tickets in September. So if I, yes, I bought concert tickets almost a year in advance. I'm that excited, <laughs> but like, you know, if it's required in order to get it in the concert, maybe I'll get it. I, I don't know. Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, for me, the vaccine is a line in the sand. I would equip. I would equip my last job over it oh. had they required it. Yeah. Thankfully, I work. I, in I a, think yeah. I work in a remote job. Like my employer is all re- like is is worldwide, and they're they're based in Georgia, so uh, I don't have to worry about that so much. Like I'm going to be working via Zoom even after everything reopens, if it ever happens. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think for me, it's the symbology of it. It's the, mm-hmm. the bodily autonomy uh, issue with it. And, um, you know, I, I think, in my opinion, it was always folly to assume that there would it would be law to that you would need to get vaccinated. Right. Although the precedent is there, um, I'll emphasize that. It was the, I don't, okay, tangent here. Uh, Buck Please. v. Bell was a Supreme Court case in which uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. wrote the primary, um, he wrote the majority opinion, saying that it was constitutional for um, carry, for the state basically to, um, ah, geez, what is the word, sterilize someone against their will. This was Carrie Buck. She was, um, she was considered mentally defective. She was born out of wedlock, someone who was in a institution and she was the spawn of folks who were, you know, they were out of wedlock, out of wedlock for generations. And I think it was, I don't know if it was an incestual relationship or something like that, but um, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. wrote the opinion that's, that allowed the state to sterilize her. I'd, I'd encourage everyone to read the opinion. If we throw it, we can throw it in the show notes page. Uh, he, in his in his fashion, I mean, he was he was a positive law advocate. He was kind of, um, I don't want to go out and say that he was a progressive because I've done some research on it and I can't say that for certain. Um, but he said- and, and when you say when you say that, you mean like a formal member of the progressive movement, right? Yes, yeah, capital P. Um, yeah, I can't say that for certain. His judicial philosophy is kind of varied. He's kind of a loose cannon. It's hard to pin him down. Um, he is an advocate of, you know, centrally plan, central planning. And he, he was a eugenicist as, as far as I can tell as well. Um, but if you read his language, it's, it's awful. Um, what, three generations of imbeciles is enough. And surely if the state can reach far enough to Boy. vaccinate someone against their will, that can reach as far as the, um, the what it was the uterine cords when you get your tube tied. Um, yeah. And basically where I was getting at with this is that the case that Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. relied upon to write the opinion that would allow for mandatory, um, or excuse me, that would allow for involuntary, involuntary sterilization was a case where the Supreme Court ruled that it was constitutional to allow, to, to legislate mandatory vaccinations, um, so I wanted to write, you know, one of my Substack articles about this, but there's already precedent saying that the state can make it mandatory to vaccinate you. That's my understanding. Didn't, uh, God, who's the lawyer? I think I think he was like a. Ugh, oh my God, he's Alan Dershowitz. Didn't yeah. he come out with a similar position on that? He did, and um, I'll have to I'll have to reach out. Oh, I have this. I have this video. I think I saved it. He did. And um, it was very striking. It was disturbing. I'll have to put it in the 
show notes page for everyone. I'm making a lot of work for you. <laughs> Thanks. Just send me the links. I'll, uh, yeah, I actually, know I'm, how... I'm pulling up most of them as we, as we kind of go along. I have a ton of tabs open already. Um, all right, cool. Well, Patrick, uh, what is, before we, before, before we get to you plugging your socials and your podcasts and all that, um, which everyone should subscribe yeah. to, what, uh, what would you, what advice would you give someone who wants to like survive and thrive in the next weird decade or so that's coming up? Um, well, I'll tell you what I'm doing. I, I'm trying to learn new skills. I'm trying to accumulate practical resources. I'm trying to establish connections with my community. And I'm trying to um, network with like-minded individuals. So I, I think, um, you know, this is something I talk about quite a bit in my work is um, freedom in an unfree world is uh, Harry Brown wrote this book. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, afterwards, I found out that my grandpa, my John Bircher grandpa, made my mom read this when she was a teenager. <laughs> she told me about this. Um, but he said, you know, there's so many ways that the state controls you without even controlling you um, overtly, like with legislation. And the more you allow yourself to be consumed with the fact that you're not free, the less free you are. So what you really have to do is create freedom in, in your own life through other ways like, you know, increasing your your wealth, um, increasing your free time, or at least doing what you love to do, having meaningful relationships. A lot of it is just a life philosophy. So I think it's important to uh, not get swept up in the politics of it, but be informed and make sure that, you know, you're, you're benefiting from, from the experience. You're, you're becoming a better person, a more well-rounded person, a more informed person, but not an unhappy person or, or an angry person. Um, so that's maybe my life advice that I try to follow, uh, not always the best. Um, but on the other hand, like I said, you know, um, get reloading components, get ammunition, get firearms, more important, well, have those, but more important than that, have access to a water supply, um, buy bargaining things like um, whiskey, go get um, what Evan, Evan Williams whiskey is $20 for a freaking 175. Get a bunch of those. I mean, that's going to be gold <laughs> if things really go bad. Um, cans of tuna, you know, all, all the all the the prepper stuff. Um, know that essential household items are going to be just as valuable if things really go south as cryptocurrency or fiat currency or even uh, gold bullion or silver. Um, so, so that would be my advice, you know, aside from learning practical skills and uh, networking with your neighbors and friends. Awesome. Thanks. Um, and so that being said, where can people find you? Yeah. So everyone can find me at libertyweekly.net. I'm on almost every social media platform you can conceive of, um, you know, Instagram. I, I would point everyone to the alts, actually. Uh, MeWe, Minds, Float.app. Uh, Subscribe to me on library, uh, libertyweekly.net forward slash LBRY. That's an invite. We'll both, if you make an account, we'll both get the uh, eight LBC, the cryptocurrency it runs on. So find me on all those. I'm also on Substack, um, libertyweekly.net forward slash Substack. So um, I, I really appreciate you having me on, man. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, totally. It was good to talk to you again. 
All right. Thanks again to Patrick for joining me today. Uh, thank you for listening. Um, be sure you head over to palomaverdestore.com and use Blackbird at checkout. Uh, also, make sure that you're hitting that subscribe button if you're not already subscribed. And if you have not yet subscribed to the Substack, where you will get not only email... We get email updates not only for episodes of this show, but also written content that I publish. Head to blackbird.substack.com to sign up today. Of course, there are two options, one free, one paid. The paid option right now... If you sign up for the free option, you will get every episode of the show and every publicly facing... And every public piece of written content that I, of, and every piece of public written content that I produce, um, the premium subscription will one of these days feature premium content along with bonus episodes of the show. Um, and in addition to that, you just get the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping me out. Uh, so thanks again for joining today. Thanks again for sharing the show. And until next time, live free.